We want to take our Bibles this morning. We want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you're turning in there, if you don't have a Bible with you, hey, that's okay. If you'll notice in the pew rack in front of you, there are books there. That's the Bible. And if you can turn back to about, you know, the New Testament, it's about uh, this far into the Bible. So it's almost uh, toward the end, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Ravi Zacharias, who's a theologian and a well-respected Bible scholar, said this, there are only two questions that have relevance in the matter of the resurrection. The first is, did Jesus indeed rise from the dead? And if so, second question, so what? And you look at this video, and I think that this is pretty indicative of people around in our area and people around the United States today. They celebrate Easter. It's a time maybe for eggs and for family. And of course, they recognize the resurrection of Christ. But as far as really applying it to their life, they have to ask the question, if they ever stop and ask it, so what? What does that really mean for our life? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find in the Bible, in this particular chapter, the best and most thorough chapter in the Bible about resurrection. And it begins to explain the first 11 verses about Christ's resurrection. And then in the second part of the book, chapters um, or verses 12 through the rest of the chapter, we find the, the answer of the so what. So I want to look at three things this morning. Number one, did it happen? Because unless you really believe that it happened, it's not going to make a difference in your life. Secondly, what's the meaning of it? So what? Thirdly, what do we do about it? Understand that as we open up the Bible, the Apostle Paul wrote this chapter. And of all the people that I would think of as far as Bible characters, he would be the last to want to believe in a resurrection. He was a Jewish man, and Jews, of course, believe in one God. Therefore, for someone like Jesus to claim to be the Son of God was blasphemous. If you were to study biblical history and study the Bible, you would understand that the reason why Jesus was crucified and the accusation that was made for him to him was the fact that he being a man uh, claimed, made himself out to be God. And then while some of the Jewish people believed in a resurrection, they believed the resurrection at the end of time, not in mid-history. And so for Paul to come to grips with this is, is very enlightening because here we find a man who once persecuted the church to a point of putting people to death. Then he turns around a few years later and worships with people whose family members and friends he killed. And so as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves the question, why was Paul so gripped with this whole idea of the resurrection of Christ? Again, three points. Number one, realizing that if Jesus Christ, by the way, rose from the dead, it means everything. And I want to show you that. Number one, did it happen? Well, there are three basic proofs here already in the Bible. One, two, three, listed right here in the first ten verses of 1 Corinthians. We see this. Now I make, in fact, let's just skip over to verse 3. For I delivered to you as first importance what was also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, he, rose, he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He said, the first importance. Now this gripped Paul so much in his life that he says nothing's more important than these facts. Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, 
we understand in history that what happened to Jesus was he was nailed to a cross. First he was beaten beyond description really. Then he was nailed to a cross. Hands and feet were nailed there. He was pronounced dead by a Roman executioner. He was wrapped like a mummy, placed in a borrowed tomb for three days. He was Then a rock was placed over the tomb. It was sealed by the Roman seal, which could not be broken unless it's uh, the penalty of death. And then on the third day, the, thing was em- the, the whole grave was empty. And you think to yourself, well, how in the world could this happen? Well, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew explains it this way, that the Jews and the Romans started a rumor. And the rumor was is that the disciples stole the body. You see, when you have a tomb that's empty, you've got to come up with alternative answers besides the supernatural one if you don't believe in that. And so they were spreading this rumor, well, here's the problem to that. One, they didn't have opportunity. Roman guards were guarding the tomb. But also, if they had stolen the body from the tomb, then they lived their life for Jesus Christ, believing the lie that he was resurrected. Then they died for their faith. Now, I'm not debating the fact that many, many people over the years have died for their faith, but they believed their faith was real. They believed it was right. If the disciples died for their faith, they knew they were, they were believing the lie. They were dying for a lie. The other alternative, the only one that's plausible, no matter what you want to make up, and you have, the only ones I've ever found that are plausible is that one and the fact that the, maybe the, the Romans and the Jews, or the Jews at least, stole the body. And they were going to have a coup here. They were going to steal the body because Jesus said that he would be resurrected on the third day. And then when the disciples started preaching the resurrection, they were going to produce the body. The problem is they never produced the body. All they had to do to squelch the rumor was to produce the body of Christ, which they did not. And so the writings of the early Roman historians like Josephus tell us that the tomb was empty. Secondly, the second proof was that hundreds of people saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Look in verse 5. And he appeared to Cephas, that was the apostle Peter, and to the twelve, twelve disciples, after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And that's the way the Bible explains death sometimes, falling asleep, like we, we would say somebody's passed away. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, and to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, me, he says, he appeared to me also. And so here's the argument that he's giving. And the, the, the church, believe me, at, at Corinth was not doubting the resurrection of Christ. Why? See, that wasn't the issue. The issue was not that they doubted Christ's resurrection. They were wondering how to apply that. So what? Does that mean that we're going to be resurrected? They were doubting that their own resurrection was going to take place. They just could not know that for sure until Paul explained it. Now, why did they not doubt the resurrection of Christ? Because of what it says right here. 500 brethren saw him at one time, and then some of them, he says, are still alive, and probably living in some of them in Corinth. And so there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Let me tell you how important that is. Um, in fact, let me just share, you know, I played golf last weekend, and not this weekend, but last weekend, and somebody would ask me the question, what is the greatest thrill that you've ever had in golf? Well, it had to be, and you know, you, you would understand this, it had to be winning the Masters Tournament in Augusta last week. Who can forget 
that wonderful shot I made out of the woods, landed on the green, and that five-foot putt I made in the left corner of the cup just to fall in to win my very first green jacket after trying for 40 years. <laughs> who, could, who, can remember, who could forget that? Well, it's hard to forget it when you don't even know, you don't remember it in the first place, right? You say, well, Pastor, I know that's not true. You played golf with me last Saturday in the men's tournament, and you were so awful you would never make the Masters tournament. And not only that, but Sir Joe Garcia won that. I saw it on TV. Some of you were maybe actually there watching the tournament. You see, there are eyewitnesses. And you say, well, that, that's not a good correlation, Pastor, because I mean, after all, that just happened last week. Now, what about the resurrection? Paul probably, what, wrote about the resurrection 100, 200 years after it happened? No. Paul was a contemporary of Jesus. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth 16 to 18 years after the resurrection of Christ happened. We know that. 16 to 18 years. Now, that's like comparing it to what happened in our country in that terrorist attack in New York City, 9-11. And somebody said, well, it never happened. <laughs> you don't believe that, do you? Well, yeah, I believe it. I saw it on TV. Somebody else says, well, I was there, and I know people. I wasn't there, but I know people that were there. They were running as, as all this smoke was going up and all the debris was falling. You, there's eyewitness accounts. I went there after, uh, the, after the terrorist attack, and those buildings, the Twin Towers, are simply not there anymore. They were once there. They, weren't, they were not there. And so if you say there's a, not a terrorist attack, where did those buildings go? What happened to them? 16 to 18 years. Nobody would doubt that 9-11 actually happened. Nobody's, nobody's talking about that, and nobody was talking about the resurrection here. Now, notice hundreds of people, not only that, but hundreds of people's lives have been changed. You say, well, they're just hallucinating. You don't have hallucinations in groups, all right? A group of 500 saw all this at one time. But the third thing was this, lives were changed. Look in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. He says, my life was changed. I was a persecutor of the church. I actually went about hunting down Christians and killing them because they were influencing my religion, the Jewish people, and winning them over to their religion. And so I thought I was doing God this great favor, and I, my life was changed. You can't, you know, you saw Quincy's testimony today. You can talk, I can testify about my life changed as a teenager, as a, in my late teens. When I came to know Christ, there are people sitting around you that have their own witness and their own testimonial about God and how his story worked in their life and, and created a story and a message in their life about their own salvation experience. But also, one thing you, you just, you can't deny that. But you can't also deny what happened in biblical times. Because not only was lives, were lives changed, but society was changed. There was a new world view that came in overnight that never happens. For example, in, in America, in the 1850s, when we were, uh, 1850s, 60s, when we were fighting the Civil War, there were things going on in uh, intellectual halls up in the Northeast that would doubt truth. The different philosophies being put together to say truth is kind of relative. 
you know, Hegel, George Hegel's philosophy. Uh, truth is all relative. You know, here's a truth, and somebody else comes up with something, you know, just audacious and ridiculous. Nobody's going to believe it. But then truth begins to slide a little bit this way. And then somebody else says this again. It slides a little bit more. And pretty soon, it begins to, to match it. Uh, in the 1950s, if you worked, not the 1850s, but the 1950s, 100 years later, if you were to ask most Americans, do they believe the Bible, they would say yes. Do you believe in the resurrection? Absolutely. Do you go to church? I sure do. Almost every Sunday. We had traditional values. People said, now the, the modernism was coming through. The modernism just simply said, you know, truth is truth. It's just what's your opinion on, on, on what that truth really interprets, how you interpret that truth. Postmodernism says, there is no truth. Now, if you were to look at things in 1950s, we would be living in one way, but in the tw 21st century, 60, 65 years later, we're believing something totally different. Traditional values are out the window. Now, I'm saying all that to say this. It took about 150 plus years from the very first thoughts of that um, relativism to change the, our worldview. Worldviews do not change overnight, but it did then. As soon as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, thousands of Jewish people changed their minds on Jesus Christ, changed their minds about the resurrection, changed their minds in the afterlife. Romans were saved. In fact, this whole society so changed everything that Christians began to be attacked. By AD 70, just a few years later, the temple in Jerusalem was just destroyed. And after that, the Roman Empire, not long after that, was overtaken by Christianity. We see a worldview change happening all at the same time. Now, here's why this is important. N.T. Wright, a theologian, said this. If there had been only one, just been the empty tomb and no sighting, people would say, oh, you know, somebody stole the body. If there had been an empty tomb, or, or, or rather a full tomb, and the grave was not empty, but there was a lot of sightings going on about Jesus, you would say, oh, everybody's just hallucinating maybe. But when you put all three of these together, you have three things. You have the empty tomb, the eyewitness testimonies, plus a worldview change overnight, plus the changing of individual lives. He says, you cannot deny what has happened here. And here was Paul. Paul was not saying, look, I want to receive Christ into my life because I have a need. He didn't have that need. Well, I, I just feel guilty about all the Christians I've killed. He was not feeling guilty at all. In fact, he was thought he was doing God a favor. But I need peace in my life. Nowhere in the Bible do we find that. The reason why Paul was gripped with the resurrection of Jesus Christ is because he thought through it and he realized it was true. He was basing his life on true things. But it does really have a meaning. And we get into this in the next few verses. And there are three things here also that Paul explains, and many things, but three things I want to highlight because it's really grouped under three different things. Number one is that because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, your sins can be forgiven. Look with me in verse um, 13. If there be no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then you are pre our preaching is in vain, our faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God. We're liars if Jesus has not been risen. Then in verse 16, for if dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, his argument is since Jesus has been raised from the dead, you're going to be raised too. 
But then he says in verse 17, if Christ has not been risen, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Now listen to me very carefully. There's no question about it that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for our sins, that's where he paid the price. The perfect Lamb of God went to the cross. He was nailed to the cross. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Blood in the Bible is a symbol of life being poured out. So Jesus' blood was poured out for us on the cross, and because of that, every single one of our sins can be forgiven, and we can live guilt-free. We can go out of this room today knowing that we've been forgiven of everything that we've done. So where does the resurrection fit in? The resurrection is a stamp of approval of what Christ did. For example, if you committed a crime and you were sentenced to two years in prison, how would you know that you paid your debt to society? The doors would open and you would go set, be set free. How do we know that God uh, received the testimony of Jesus Christ? How do we know that the, the blood of Christ paid for our sins? Jesus came, Christ came forth from the tomb. See, Paul understood something. Back in the Old Testament times, they had temple worship before that tabernacle worship, and they had what they had, an, an outer court where all the people kind of gathered around, then an inner court where only the Jews were, and then the holy place where the priest went, and then there was a place called the Holy of Holies, just a little small place behind a curtain, and the high priest went once a year behind the curtain to sacrifice for the sins of Israel for the coming year. And it would be the blood of a goat. He would go back there and, and place it on the Ark of the Covenant, the, called the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was so an awesome thing that because Jesus had not died yet and nobody could really approach God freely, a rope was tied around the priest's waist. So if he died, because he, you know, if, you, if you touch the Ark, you would die. If he died, they could pull him out because it was against the law to go beyond the veil. Now, when the priest came out, and everybody waited in anticipation. They were waiting and waiting and waiting. When he came out of the temple, the high priest, and he was still alive, and it was announced that the sacrifice had been made, him coming out of the temple was a sign that God approved of the sacrifice that was made there on Calvary. So Paul knew that he was forgiven from the cross because of the resurrection of Christ. Well, not only are your sins forgiven... But you can also have a relationship right now. He says in verse 14, your faith is also in vain if Jesus Christ is not died. Your, your faith, your life is worthless. That's what he's saying. But now because when you and I receive Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of our heart. Therefore, we get a lot of benefits. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Paul puts those forth in Galatians chapter 5. We have all these benefits. We have the forgiveness. We have all the touchy-feely things that we really need in this life. Right now, a little bit of touch of heaven on earth as our life is fulfilled. In fact, early Christians, it was discovered by historians, early Christians really did make a difference. There were three things historians tell us that were different among the first, second, and third century Christians that were different from the rest of the people. During that time... Rome had an infiltration of plagues, killed about 25, 30% of the people. 
And they found that everybody was running to the mountains, running away from the plague because it was very contagious. In fact, they would, when a relative got this, one of these diseases, one of these plagues, they'd kick them out into the street and they left. But they found the Christians stayed in town, they stayed in the cities. And they ministered not only to their own, but also the ones that were kicked out into the street. Then secondly, they were different in persecution. While a lot of people being persecuted, like if you uh, read history or watch the Bible movies, they're called zealots, and they would fight back. You know, Barabbas that was saved from the cross was a zealot. They found that Christians did not only not fight back in terrorism, but they prayed for their enemies as they died. Thirdly, community. Open borders, why? Because Rome owned everything. Can you imagine the United States of America having the whole world? All of, you know, yeah, we would have open borders then. And what happened was back then when Rome ruled the world, that people would go from place to place and religions would mix and everybody would persecute one another, except the Christians realized that there wasn't many gods. There was only one God, and God loved everybody, and that was the group of people that were most receptive to the different individuals, the people that were different from them. So you see, we have a difference in history, but we also have a difference right now in life. Third thing is this. When you and I receive Christ, we can apply it to our life because it does make a difference in our future life. As what said was on the video just a few moments ago by one of the young gentlemen. He said, that gives us hope for the future, that this life maybe is not all there is. Now, again, they were doubting their own resurrection, but here's what, Christ, here's what uh, Paul says about it. He says, but now, verse 20, kind of turn, the whole really passage turns on these two words. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For an Adam all died. All of us inherited a sin nature from Adam. So we all die. But he says, in Christ all are may be made alive. And here's an agricultural type of illustration. What he's saying is like, it's like the first fruits. You go out in the harvest, you're going to harvest some, I don't know, some wheat. And you harvest a little bit of it, take it to the market, and the, uh, the merchants look and they bid on your, your crop based upon the first fruits with the promise that the rest of the harvest is going to come and this is how much they're going to pay for it. Jesus Christ is the first fruits, but there's a harvest coming after us, after him, and that harvest is us. He said, We will be raised again to life. And this life is not all there is. And he talks about that from verse 20 all the way through verse 57. Over and over and over again giving proofs of this. Now, somebody may be saying here, yes, but, you know, after all, when, I, I think when you're dead, you're dead. Okay, let me ask you this. Are you afraid of death at all? When you come to a funeral, are you a little bit more like me where you think, well, I, I feel so bad for the family. But wow, you know, one day that's going to be me. Are you afraid of death of somebody coming into your home? Do you get scared when you're almost in a car accident? Are you afraid? What is there to be afraid of if there's nothing after death? I mean, after all, you live this life, and if you're alive, you're alive. But if you're dead, you don't know anything anyway. One philosopher said it best, even though he wasn't a believer, but it bothered him. And he said, if I were sure 
of annihilation, that once you're dead, you're dead, I could rest and not be afraid of death, but I cannot be sure. No one, no one can be sure. But notice what, he, what Jesus did. Verse 54, when, when this perishable, meaning us, have put on the imperishable, that is, when we get to heaven, we have put on immortality, then it will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where, what is the sting? It's not the bite that gets you, it's the sting. The sting of death is sin. God has overcome the power of sin in our life and the penalty, or rather the penalty for sin in our life by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. Just like this college student that was on the, uh, the video just a few moments ago. And he was asked the question, all right, if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, would that change your life at all? And he says, no, I don't think it really would. I think that's what most people think. In fact, many of you are here today, and you, if I were to ask you point blank, do you believe that Jesus Christ rose on the third day? You would say yes. But it hasn't really done anything to change your life. Now, think about what this young man's saying. He hasn't thought through it. What he's saying is, the sovereign God who created the universe and created this world and created me, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present at the same time, has come to this earth and lived 33 and a half years, died on the cross for me, was buried in a tomb, rose on the third day, and it makes no difference in my life? Think about the implication to that. No, dear friend, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, I'm with Paul. It means everything. And so, how do you apply that to your life? What do we do about it? Verse 54 says that death is swallowed up in victory. There's an encouragement. In fact, look in verse 57 and 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, now he's telling Christians what to do. Talking to the church at Corinth, not those that were outside of Christ, but those who were inside. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, strong in the Lord, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. There's going to be reward one day for everything that you're doing. While there is going to be that reward, what he's implying here is that there's an afterlife. And if there's an afterlife, we need to be ready for it because everything, everything on the other side of the grave belongs to God. There's nothing we can do then. So what can we do? The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For a person believes resulting in righteousness and with a mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. But here's the basis to the decision. Paul, I'll tell you this little story as I close. Paul was um, preaching in uh, a town and he was arrested for preaching the gospel. The gospel that says we're all sinners and separated from God. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. We must receive him into our heart and, and have a spiritual experience that the Bible calls being born again. He was preaching that gospel. And they arrested him because he was, he, he was causing, I guess, potential riots. He appeared before two guys, two officials of Rome. One was called, named Festus and another one, King Agrippa. And he was addressing both of them. And keep in mind, Paul was recognized as an intellectual. 
he was recognized as a very learned man, and he's very well educated. And he began to preach the gospel, and he got to the point of the resurrection. And Festus looked at him, and he didn't say, Paul, you know, I perceive that you're dumb. I perceive that you're uneducated. No, he said, Paul, I perceive you lost your mind. That's what he said. You've gone mad. He turned from Festus to King Agrippa, and he said, you know, Festus doesn't know really what's going on, but King Agrippa, you do know what's going on. You were there when the tomb was empty. You were there when all the people were testifying that they had seen the risen Lord. You were there when the life changes were taking place. And you must come to grips with the truth of this gospel. Now look this way. Paul was not embracing the gospel because it made him feel good. He was bracing the gospel because of truth. And he was telling King Agrippa, do you think I wanted to deal with this? Man, I was, I was with you and Festus. I was really on your team. But I had to deal with the truth. W.H. Auden, philosopher, said this, I believe in Jesus not because he fulfills my dreams, but because he is the opposite of what I would make him if I made him in my own image. I need a God not that meets my needs, but one that is true. Paul understood that. Do you? With heads bowed and eyes closed, this morning we've been faced, I believe, with the truth of Christ. And since Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and all evidence points to that, we have to do something with it because it changes everything. And if you apply this to your life, your sins will be forgiven, you'll have a reason to live, and you will be assured of heaven in the afterlife. If you desire this in your heart, and you would come to grips and think through just for a moment, say, wow, this is true, it's true. If it's true, how can anything else matter compared to this truth? Then I invite you right now to pray with me. And you can pray out loud, you can pray silently. You can use your own words, but I'm just leading you in a prayer in case you're wondering what kind of prayer you need to pray. This is something you can pray along with me to receive Christ into your life and heart. Pray with me now. Lord Jesus and Lord God in heaven, I thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. And after he was buried, he rose again. Declare it was so. And Lord, I reach up to you with the tr- knowing it's the truth and ask you to forgive me of my sins and ask you to come into my life and heart. Help me follow you the way others have followed you. Change my heart the way you've changed millions of people's hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we want to all stand together, and we're going to sing a a hymn of a little song of invitation. Let's stand. And before we sing, let me explain what we're about to do. Some of you go to churches, perhaps, that do not have a, a public invitation, an altar call. But I know there are people here today 
that first of all, you have need, real needs in your heart. Maybe you've been away from God for a while, and you know that you need to come to grips with that truth again. And the altar is open. You might want to just come, maybe bring your family, and just pray and say, God, I just want to give my life on the altar for you once again in, fresh, in a fresh way. There's others that need to pray for other people. Maybe they're here today, maybe they're not. And you're so concerned about them. But also, if you prayed that prayer to receive Christ with me, I want to give you an opportunity to come and take one of these gentlemen by the hand. Guys, if you just raise your hand, okay? Take one of these guys by the hand, one of our staff members, and just say, I prayed that prayer with the pastor. And as you come, they'll pray with you. They'll give you some material that you need. Just, just help you get started walking with Christ. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed, as Tim leads us in this song right now, the next few minutes, very quickly, you come. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.